0: What's the first thing to keep first? It's the answer to the very question that John posed to those in his day and to us as well. Will you and I be faithful to Christ in the midst of whatever Satan throws at us, big or small? Will we be faithful to our testimony for Jesus and the Word of God, resisting the mark of the beast in whatever form it comes? Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Many of you are aware, I'm sure, that Pastor Richard has been taking us through a series of messages on the second half of the book of Revelation. Uh, This morning we are turning to Revelation chapter 20, which happens to be probably the most hotly debated Book uh, or chapter of the entire book of Revelation. I'm going to ask that you would turn there with me, and we're going to read this text together uh, just a little while uh, after I give us some more introduction about the passage and about the book of Revelation itself. Now, the cause of this debate, this debate that centers on chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, the debate has to do with the nature and the length and the timing of, of the 1,000-year binding of Satan. And we're going to read about this uh, in the verses here in chapter 20. Now, scholars and pundits have openly debated for centuries the meaning of the timing of these 1,000 years mentioned here. Uh, Many of you, as a result of this debate and uh, all the writing that's been produced uh, around this subject may have heard words like premillennial or amillennial, postmillennial, dispensational, and words kind of like this— This morning, I want you to know, I need you to know, that we're not going to concentrate on this debate, even though a lot of folks like to do that, because frankly, what I want to do this morning is keep first things first. I want to lift up into our forefront the key thing that I think God has revealed to John here, and that which I think he's calling us uh, to keep in mind and to take away. Frankly, this whole discussion about the uh, thousand-year binding of Satan, it's a moot point anyway. Now, for some of you, that last phrase that I, that I said there, that it's a moot point, those are fighting words, right? Okay. How can you say that a thousand-year uh, binding of Satan is a moot point, you know? Uh, no way that this could be uh, the case. When we read the text, it says a thousand years. We just need to figure out when this is going to happen because inquiring minds want to know, right? Right? And inquiring minds do want to know. And despite the fact that Jesus says in multiple places, don't engage in this kind of speculation, uh, a cottage industry of sorts has developed um, with books that have been produced and cable television shows that all seeks to make sense of the book of Revelation and the Bible in this way. Here's the thing. None of them fully agree with one another. So it's something else. But still... Why not focus on mapping out a timeline on the 1,000 years? Well, I'm here to tell you why. And in order to do that, I need to take you into the deepest of all deeps, the minutiae of all minutia, that wonderful and exhilarating, exciting world of Greek verbs. Now, hang with me for just a moment. We're going to go down deep for just a little while. We're going to come back up for air in just a moment. So here's the thing. Just like in English, Greek verbs come in three moods. Now, some of you are having flashbacks to Latin class right now. I know you are. And the three moods are imperative, indicative, and subjunctive. The indicative mood is used to make Factual statements, this or that, this or that. The imperative mood makes a request or a command. The subjunctive mood expresses doubt or hesitancy, contingency. And when we run across a word like this in the Greek language, we use words in the English language to translate the mood, words like this, could or would or should or maybe. Well, guess what mood is used here in verses 3 and 7 in the book of Revelation? It's the subjunctive mood. And when we allow that to reflect our English translation, we get something like this. He, that is the angel, threw Satan into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years might be ended. Whenever the thousand years could be over, Satan will be released from prison. Now, for some reason, most of our English translations do not reflect this nuance, except for, interestingly, the old King James, which is a little better in this regard. So the question is this. What's the contingency? If the length of Satan's binding and loosing is up in the air to some degree, dependent upon something else— Just what is it dependent upon? The answer to that is one of the things that I want us to look at today. So if you would, please follow along with me now as I read for us Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. If you did not bring your Bibles here with you today, there are Bibles available to you in the pews where you're sitting. And this passage begins on page 1,936. Let us listen to God's word. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years could be ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones in which were sealed those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have Part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years could be over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the corners, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night there forever and ever. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his holy word. Friends, we can't read this book like Dispassionate Academics or something like that. It is gripping. It is heart-pounding. John wants to pull us into the gravity of what he's trying to say. And in order to do that, he uses a stunning combination of images and colors and lions and tigers and bears and characters that are scary and severe. His intention is to grab us in such a way that we might be pulled into that drama of what's going on in heaven while you and I are living on planet Earth. He wants us to feel that. As Richard has shared with us, this writing style that John employs is called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic writing. And you know what? It works. You and I cannot read the book of Revelation without being pulled into the gravity of what God is revealing to John and John would have us know. Now at the same time, in the midst of all this imagery and all this emotion, you and I, we cannot be lost in that emotion such that we lose sight of the central message in each chapter that God would have us know. A message that was as relevant to the followers of Jesus in John's day As it is on our own. So if you would look back at verse 4 with me. It says this. I saw thrones on which were seated those who were given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Because of their testimony about Jesus. And because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. A thousand years here's what we know from history during the time when John wrote the book of Revelation, the Roman Emperor Domitian reinstituted worship of the Emperor in Asia Minor. Asia Minor of course is present-day Turkey and this is where the seven churches that are written about in the book of Revelation this is where they were located. Since Christians refused to worship the emperor as God, they were considered traitors, and they were persecuted. Now, punishment for not worshiping the emperor was crucifixion for lower-class folks and for non-Roman citizens. Punishment for the middle and the upper class was, guess what? Beheading. During this time period, denying that Caesar is king or Caesar is lord or Caesar is divine or God, this could get you killed. But the early Christians could not do that because for them, only Jesus was lord and king. There was another problem that put these early Christians at odds with their society. So Roman emperors liked to brag about themselves and uh, so they regularly had their own image stamped onto any coinage that was produced during their reign. Here's a coin uh, with the Roman Emperor Tiberius's image stamped upon it. Again, verse 4 says this, They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Remember, these particular Christians, as we've seen, they were probably middle and upper class. They were of the... Uh, merchant and and the noble classes, but they uh, could not in good conscience engage in commerce because to have done so would figuratively meant that in their minds or in their foreheads, uh, they would have to exchange with their hands coinage which bore the image of that which they did not believe. To do so, in effect, would have meant that a mark would have been left on their minds and their hands as a betrayal. Their testimony for Jesus, right, it was hitting them in the pocketbooks. As Pastor Richard has pointed out, Babylon represents any power that sets itself against God's people. And the beast is any such leader of that power. In the context of the book of Revelation, Babylon is Rome, and the beast is Caesar. Here's the thing, though. It might be good to think that uh, this kind of uh, power, this type of malevolent movement, was something that was only in existence in the first century. But the truth of the matter is, there have always been powers and leaders who, for whatever reason, whatever reason have set themselves against God's people, there have been leaders in movements that have made totalitarian claims about who we are and how we can worship uh, and to whom we would ultimately belong. These claims have been going on for a long time. But even in our own day, of course, there are, there are movements around the world. There are powers and, and leaders who would make totalitarian claims over our lives. Did you all know that more Christians have died for their faith in this century than in all the centuries combined together. Many times in our American bubble, we don't hear a lot about this. It doesn't pierce through uh, the news media very much, but from time to time, it does kind of creep up. Uh, I'm sure some of you all watched the um, State of the Union address um, that was back in January night. You may remember uh, some of the folks that were featured during that speak speech. One of those was this individual... Uh, He is a Christian human rights advocate who has defected from North Korea. And during the State of the Union speech, we heard a little bit about his heroic story and how he now helps others escape what was his own Babylon. What you all may not know is that since his appearance in January, news sources have reported that the North Korean government has executed 33 more people simply because they had contact with a Christian missionary in North Korea. Now, folks, this is not quite the same picture as those cute leaders at the Olympics, right? Yeah. Although North Korea is at the top of the list when it comes to persecuting Christians, we probably hear more about the plight of of Christians in the Middle East, right? Uh, What we do not hear much about. Uh, when we hear about our brothers and sisters there is how they're actually responding to the persecution. When I went to the e c o s national gathering in Houston uh back in January, uh, there was a little private reception that was held for one of the associate pastors at the uh Costa El debaro Presbyterian Church in downtown Cairo. This is the largest Protestant church in the Middle East, eight thousand members right. And uh, so he was talking to us and, and, uh, and telling us stories. And of course, you know, he was pretty sad. He was talking about some of the persecution that's occurred in Egypt, uh, the bombings, uh, some of the assassinations that have occurred, and all these kinds of things. But, you know, it was interesting to me when he spoke, he, was, he wasn't angry. And he wasn't filled with hate. And, uh, and this is actually what he said. He said, for those who would hate us and want us gone... He said, he said, they wish us death, but we wish them life. And the pastor went on to show us videos of open-air revivals and evangelistic events that are occurring all over Egypt, drawing tens of thousands of people to praise Jesus Christ. And the reason why they're gathering together is because they are being emboldened by the persecution. Two years ago, when Richard and I were in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, there was one day when we uh, went up to uh, some of the cities outside of Alexandria, a number of Presbyterian churches there, and we talked to the leaders uh, that had gathered to kind of speak to our group. And in in the course of that conversation, uh, they spoke about their ministry to refugees. Refugees fleeing the violence from Syria or coming down to Egypt. And uh, they said that they... uh, they were hosting uh, many of these families and uh, i heard in the course of the conversation that they happened to mention in in passing that some of the refugee families that they were hosting were isis and i thought did i hear that right and i did a little double take and i swung back around and i asked some of the, the leaders after you know apart from the group that was speaking another egyptian leader and i asked him do these Christian families know they're, they're hosting ISIS? I say that, I mean that's kind of dangerous, right? And this is what he said. he said. He said, yes, but Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Take that, American pastor. He didn't mean it like that. Friends, our brothers and sisters in Egypt are not looking for martyrdom. But they won't play it safe either. And they won't shrink away from their testimony for Jesus and for the truth of God's word. I can tell you that in my role as missions pastor here for you all, I receive daily reports about Christians being persecuted in places like China and Myanmar and India and Iran. Stories I read sometimes, well, honestly, they're pretty horrendous. One group in China that I know about includes in their pastor training curriculum biblical interpretation 101, 102, and the next course is how to survive torture. And class four is how to escape custody. Folks, we have no idea. So, what do we do? What can you and I do? Well, first, and I say this seriously. We can pray. It appears that in certain or some quarters of our culture right now, prayer is kind of sneered upon as an answer to violence. But let me tell you something. The folks that I know around the world, when they talk to me about what they're going through, the very first thing they always ask me to do and they ask you to do is they say, Brian, pray for us. Secondly, we can stay informed. Stories of what is happening to Christians around the world, we can find those. They may they just be buried just a little bit, but they're out there in the media. Some of us on the missions committee are going to a movie called Tortured for Christ on March 5th. It's going to be at uh, Camelot and Hollywood theaters. I think tickets are still available for that. Inform yourself. Thirdly, we can give. And folks, here's some good news. Our missions committee here Make sure that a significant portion of that which you put in the offering plate every week goes to a number of highly credible agencies that are lifting up the voices of the voiceless and are advocating around the world for the freedom to worship and live for Christ. Agencies like Voice of the Martyrs, International Justice Mission, There's another group we support. I I can't name them publicly, but they offer post-traumatic stress counseling to underground church leaders in Iran who have either been tortured or who have colleagues been put to death. Other organizations we support are helping relieve the suffering of refugees in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon as well. And these refugees are not always Christians, There there are Muslims who have been swept up into the violence as well. Remember what the pastor in Cairo said. They wish us death, but we wish them life. Well, that's what's going on around the world, right? What about us here in Greenville, South Carolina? Are there powers and movements here and even in North America that would increasingly seek to make... Totalitarian claims on our lives in, in a way that would say curb religious freedom and speech. Claims that would say that there are areas of our life that do not belong to Jesus Christ, would belong, would belong say, to the state or something else. Have you all watched the news lately? Some would say that we are moving into our own exile our own Babylon here in North America, and what about all this contingency stuff that I that I mentioned earlier? What can make that angel in heaven bind or loosen Satan, plus or minus a thousand years? The number one thousand apocalyptic writing, by the way, is it means completeness or totality. So could it be that whenever we as God's people, whenever we live faithfully according to the word of God under persecution, that that angel in heaven grinds his foot down just a little bit more over the top of that abyss and he tightens that chain even more around Satan's neck? Could it be that every time a child is adopted into a Christian home, evil is completely bound from that child's life? Could it be that every time a Christian couple becomes, a foster, becomes foster parents for a small child, Satan and his deception are totally bound from that child's life? Could it be that every time we sit with a kid, maybe a kid that didn't even look like us, and we patiently teach him or her how to read, satanic confusion is dispelled, and God receives this as pleasure. When someone asks, why are you here and why are you doing all this? And, and they say, well, you must be a really nice person to come and, and, and do something so nice like this. And, and we say, no, frankly, I'm really not a very nice person if you got to know me. The reason why I'm here is because the love of Christ compels me. You all recognize these stories? The stuff we're doing here. Some of you. These are the kinds of things that have been going around here for years now. Here's the thing. This is just the stuff the early Christians did. During the time of the writing of the Book of Revelation, for the few few histories of for few centuries of the, the Christian movement here, do you know what happened? That brutal Roman Empire came down under the weight of faith, hope, and love. This is not about taking a defensive posture or isolating ourselves from the world, nor is it about just giving up and letting whatever the world throws at us, just letting it chew us up and spit us out. Rather, it's about being faithful and actively, intentionally being present where God has planted us, just like God told those exiles through Jeremiah in the original Babylon. What's the first thing to keep first? It's the answer to the very question that John posed to those in his day and to us as well. Will you and I be faithful to Christ in the midst of whatever Satan throws at us, big or small? Will we be faithful to our testimony for Jesus and the Word of God, resisting the mark of the beast in whatever form it comes? Friends, if we do this, But did you all read what the Bible says in verse 6? They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. May it ever be so in our lives, Lord Jesus, in this life and in the next. Let us pray. Father, give us ears to hear your voice speaking to our lives. Let all other voices be drowned out by the eternal praise of your angels in heaven. Until that day when we would join that heavenly chorus, let us remain faithful and true to the songs of your glory. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.